So I, I, hearing Eugene, I, I was reminded of the um, first time I heard Ajahn Chah, one of the first times I met him when he came to England in 1977. He'd been invited by the English Sangha Trust, which was established in 1956 in Britain with the idea of bringing over monastics, and particularly at that time, that, were, that, that, that meant um, um, monks. And um, the, um, one of the founders of that trust had gone over to Thailand to meet various, uh, go to various monasteries and meet various masters and had been recommended to go to Wat Ba Pong in the um, Udan Ruchitani, which in the northeast of Thailand, and was very uh, struck and impressed by Ajahn Chah and invited him for his first visits, the first time he, he, um, he came to the West which rather bemused him in all sorts of ways when he met um, Westerners. He had had um, already some Western disciples, as Kitty Saro mentioned. So I was on a retreat similar to this, uh, young people at that time. Um, many of us, obviously Europeans, and not that long really, I suppose, after the decimation of the Second World War, which was very impactful, particularly in Europe and particularly in Britain, was the... Our, our parents and grandparents lived through that. My grandparents also lived through the First World War. Um, and so, it, you know, we were a, a mixed group of Europeans from all over Europe and perhaps the first generation coming out of these war zones and actually sitting meditation together. Um, in that day, in those days, we were doing a very strict form of Burmese practice, which was sort of, you know, pretty intense and very difficult. You weren't able to even look at anyone. I had no idea what was going on for the whole 10 days, pretty much, as our, our teacher from Burma couldn't speak English. I certainly couldn't speak Burmese. It was now Myanmar. But, um, you know, I did get the idea of just observe. I didn't quite know what to observe, but I figured out eventually it was the breath. Um, so, anyway, I... I <laughs> It was it was a pretty bleak and difficult experience, but in the in the middle of all of that, besides trying to run away, which also wasn't that successful, I had to sort of come back and sit it out. But in the middle of that, um, this amazing monk turned up, and um, you know, Ajahn Chah was a very power, had a, you know he was very masterful as as a master and had a, a very um, particular kind of presence, which was very powerful very free, very humorous, and very direct. Um, and so he gave this talk. I snuck out of the retreat center to go listen to it to students in, in Oxford. And um, it was also um, where um, I first also heard about Kirisaro in the same retreat. We heard about this American that had gone off to Thailand. We thought that was very keen. So um, that wasn't quite, that felt very far to go for me, but um, I did eventually make it there to track down Ajahn Chah, but, but I first went to, to listen to him talk to a group of students, and um, he talked in Thai, of course, and was translated, and as he was uh, teaching Dharma, I was thinking, that this is really, really good, you know, um, everything he would say, and it was where he was saying it from, too, it was, I suppose, the first time I really heard Dharma. And at the end of the talk, he said, well, if you've been sitting here thinking this is good or this is bad, you haven't really been listening properly. And so, of course, I thought, well, that's really good. <laughs> so I'm still learning to listen beyond my value judgments and my inner critique. But uh, Ajahn Chah would encourage us. He said, oh, you Westerners, you know, you read so much, but you haven't read the book of your own heart. So when, when his disciples first came from the West, he said, no, you can't read for five years. It wasn't a statement against reading, but he said, you already got so many ideas, but you don't know your own heart, you know. And he said, you're, you're like people with a, with a big house with lots of rooms in it, but it's got lots of clutter. Yeah, so you just clean out those rooms, and then you'll have a lot of space, you know. And, uh, so he really got uh, Westerners in a particular way, and... and um, and he really connected and related and could see w w what we needed. And uh, he was also very, uh, very open. One of the things that happened when he first 
went on arms round, which he encouraged his disciples to still do in the West, and to actually keep that tradition of, of, of going in faith. You know, it's a very good metaphor for walking the path, you know, to every day with an empty bowl, to go out there in the streets in faith and see what would arise in, in response from the Dharma, from the faith and practice of the Dharma. Will you get fed? Will someone meet you? And lots of people would say, no, you can't do that in Britain. Um, no, you, you've got to sort of do it with money and you've got to do it somehow in a different way. And, and so he said, well, aren't there any good people in Britain? <laughs> So one day he was out there in, in this first visit, walking on, in Hampstead um, on arms round with his bowl, just very, very, he walked every step he would take. It was like he wasn't going anywhere, Ajahn Chah. He was arriving with every step, just arriving. He was just, just a phenomenon just to watch Ajahn Chah walk. He was very, very, you know, very sort of like the, a fulcrum of the universe was here, you know, in his presence. It wasn't like he was moving out. It was just like things were moving into him to be met. So he was walking down the street with a couple of Western disciples behind him, monks with their bowl. And, and you know, these young kids came up, you know, and was like, oh, Kung Fu. <laughs> and <laughs> they started to sort of go to Ajahn Chah and they started to do these Kung Fu kicks. And the worst thing you can do in Thailand is to point your feet you know, it's a really, it's a really, um, it's a, it's a very uncool thing to do. It's, it's very, um, you know, it's a sign of, of great disrespect. So, so these young kids didn't know that, of course, but they were sort of like going up and doing these mock kicks. To, they weren't didn't kick him, but they were just sort of like I don't know whether it's exuberance or, or they were just sort of your your regular kind of British. Um, yeah, there's a certain way that we are in Britain that we're not very respectful, <laughs> especially as, as young people. I remember being like that. And, um, and Ajahn Chah just sort of took this all in and carried on walking, and then he came back. And uh, his Western disciples were mortified and apologizing, and they were setting up the meal, and they were like, oh, so I'm really sorry about that. And he just sat down. He said, no, you've got really good teachers here. <laughs> Yeah, it's like this is what, uh, and he would say everything, everything like turning everything back into the heart, even if it feels offensive. You know, just keep looking at what what are you doing with this? You know, what what where are we reacting, and and what is there to understand in this dynamic? Um, so another time when 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 people had gone to a lot of trouble to try and to try and really um, get together an evening. Um, in, in London at this first place which became the first Vihara the first sort of monastery there of that school there's an old townhouse in Hampstead and it was a hot summer's day and uh, people had gathered to listen to the master but at the same time because it was such a hot summer's day the, the windows were open but across the, the road was a pub and they were particularly having that night a, a rock concert so there's music going all night. Of course, you couldn't really speak, you know, because no one could hear him, and everyone got very agitated. It was hot and sweaty. You don't have really air conditioning. And this music was pounding away, and, and people were getting upset. And Ajahn Chah sitting there just smiling, just looking at everyone. And at the end of the evening, you know, hadn't been really able to give a Dharma talk. He just said, oh, <laughs> did that noise disturb you? Or did you go out and disturb the noise? <laughs> uh, so it's like just turning around. So this listening to the heart, we're hearing Eugene, we're invited. This retreat is very much an invitation to come back and to listen in this path of reclamation of the heart. You know, we're, we're focusing on, and Larry sent the theme of the retreat. It was very um, resonant for me, both this this journey of reclamation to reclaim what has been lost. It is true, the sacred, as Kitty Sara was pointing to in this, this uh, phrase, this line from the Mula Sutta, the Root Sutta, which is Muti Sarasabe Dhamma, that in every circumstance, in every condition, in every situation, in every unfolding, whatever it is, there is already 
vimutti, there's already freedom at the essence, at the core. There's already peace, there's already space, there's already the deathless, there's already the undying, the immovable, the immortal is already present here. It's not to be gained, it's to be turned to, to be recognized. So there's already the sacred, the sacred is already profoundly within every moment, within every breath, within every mind state, even if it is madness. And so it's our job to recognize that, but there's also a journey of reclamation because that which is sacred has been so powerfully divorced from us. We are so powerfully dislocated from sacredness. And this journey of reclamation is through the tender, is through the tenderness of the heart, which is the human journey. So this is, in a way, you could capture the journey that the Buddha traditionally laid out through his four truths of from suffering to non-suffering. You could encapsulate it with the reclamation. It's another way of talking about that journey of the sacred and uh, through the way of the tender, through the way of this heart that we actually are coming into relationship and we do so much to be out of relationship with because coming back into relationship with this heart is a journey through pain. It's a journey through joy, but you know, it's also a journey, it's a profound journey. So tonight I really want to sort of touch into some of that journey and to look at it not just only as a personal process, but also as a collective process process. And I I, I want to do this because I really think we're being called at this particular moment in our evolutionary journey uh, as human beings into something that's a bit different than where we've been. And that's something that requires us to move into a a process of profound reclamation of this heart as a collective um, as, a, as a journey that we have to do together, that we can't be liberated in some way until all of us are somehow liberated. And for that, to, that journey to be undertaken, we have to somehow, in that process, touch into the places where we have been disconnected collectively. I don't know if I can really touch into the, it's such a, it's such a large, for me, it's such a large topic, so I to just try and touch in briefly because of the framing of the time that we have together. It's a short time for this talk. Um, but uh, I really want to, to, to touch in and begin that recognition with the historical context of where we have been ripped out of soul and heart and belonging and connection very profoundly. And part of that is through um, millennia of uh, religious teachings that have placed the sacred as outside of the everyday, outside of our embodiment, outside of our deep connection with earth and with each other and have placed the sacred and the transcendent as a sort of otherworldly, heavenly, uh, disembodied, dislocated, somewhere else-ness in the sky, maybe. Or perhaps have placed the understanding of nirvana in a way that is removed um, from the, the relational, from feeling, from embodiment, and therefore it becomes something, again, that is quite sterile, perhaps, and disconnected. And the, this this profound um, dislocation has also impacts, impacts how we are in relationship when we come to spiritual practice, how we are and how we perhaps bring our understanding of practice into that context because we replicate sometimes patterns of that dislocation um, through the way that we, you know, again and again dismiss parts of ourselves as in the way of our journey rather than realizing this is our journey. And I don't know how many times I hear this within myself and within each of us, like, 
you know, this, this is going wrong, rather than realizing, no, this is right. <laughs> you know, that our discomfort, that our dislocation, that our madness, as it appears within the presence of our awareness, is going right, because it's coming to be reclaimed and to be remembered back, rather than this is going wrong because I'm not peaceful in the way that I think I should be and dislocated in some disembodied state that I have come to understand is is some sort of meditative um, nirvana. So this this religious um, conditioning and Axel Age religions that have emerged and influenced really all the metaphors, the patriarchal religions over so long, so many centuries, have created an inheritance which is part of the personal. It's not just out there, it's influences and shapes and conditions us at a quite a deep level of disconnect with our body, with nature, with wildness and wildlife, with um, the relational, with the depth of feminine which is about the relational and without about you know, a deeper nurturing in relationship to form. And with our sexuality which has become something of a soulless or disembodied or demonized part of our of our experience through our religious conditioning and through the wounding that has happened through that and the judgment and the guilt. And also has profoundly, a lot of this religious conditioning has also um, profoundly influenced another piece of historical um, affect which impacts all of us, which is the justification for a lot of the from the, I'm from Europe, from the Euro-centric um, colonization that has gone on across the planet and continues to go on through this separativeness, a, a religious conditioning that took the sacred out and saw it as something separate and out there and how through these kinds of woundings and the, the way Tara laid that out in her talk, we have come to other othering of, of, of peoples, of lands, um, in a way that has been devastating. And this has to be acknowledged and has to be seen of, of how the 400, 500 years or whatever of Eurocentric colonization has impacted. You know, I've lived the last um, 20 years in South Africa. Um, I went there at uh, 36 years of age at the 1994, the transitional time and the liberation um, of uh, Mr. Mandela and his um, helping to transition a country from what was the extremity of that consciousness, really, through the legislation of apartheid, which means literally in Afrikaans, apart, to live apart from. And, you know, so this has been a deep contemplation for me is this um, coming to reckoning and also I'm from Britain you know, Britain is, is not you know they say I have an Irish father so I also am actually Anglo-Irish and have that particular history which is another particular stream connected with colonisation but they have a saying that the Irish never forget their history and the British never remember theirs <laughs> which is absolutely true um, particularly, uh, we don't really remember. We choose not to. We remember in a very sort of romanticized or, or opaque way that, uh, that doesn't really allow us to come into full contact with the, you know, the impact of the plundering and the enslavement and the decimation of the continent of, say, Africa or the, or the diminishing and the manipulation of 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 Asia and the South Americas and the and the and the the legacy of that and and through an arrogance really through a profound sense of uh, racial arrogance that and, and hierarchy which saw its again its extremity um, through the fascism that arose within Europe and it's a tendency that is still here with us um, which is very ugly and very um, ignorant, <laughs> but very devastating not only to um, peoples that that is projected onto, but also to um, everyone's heart, ultimately. 
as it deepens and you know the shadow of all of that when it projects into the self is is a very deep ripping away from a sensitivity that really understands and knows this jitta, this heart. Really, when it f- we're attuned with that heart, it feels its relationship with everything. It's, it's an intimate world. That's the reality of the jitta, of the heart. It's not a separative consciousness that's designating out and othering into the 10,000 things and labeling and, and creating hierarchies and, and plundering and conquering and from, from our fear and from our desire. So that's, that, that wound to the sensitivity you know, comes either if we are uh, victimized, it becomes, um, we, we, we have very complex patterns of um, internal oppressions and, and, and in a sense of badness and displacement that, that have to be healed and worked through. And then when it's, or if we have, um, are, are more in the oppressive historical um, uh, peoples, you know, and there is, you know, we move between those places in some ways, but there are also very particular ways that from a white Eurocentric place that we have have a history of oppression. And that karma, if you like, and I see it in, in South Africa as a certain wounding, which is a different, it's an obvious wounding in some ways, complex and difficult within the African community and being decimated and, and disenfranchised and relocated and pulled out of lands and sectioned off. And you know, it's, a, it's a very particular kind of wounding, but then it's harder to see. It's a, it, there is a wounding within the whites. It's a, a very sort of a wounding that doesn't allow to feel the depth of sensitivity because if we go there to that depth there is such a such a devastation and such a sort of self-hatred and such a judgment that it can't be felt it has to be continually be projected so if we understand as we start to understand when we really go into the nature of mind and the nature of self we start to realize that and we start not personalizing everything so much, we start to realize that the world and self are a projection of each other. You know, what is happening in the self and how we feel about ourself and the shadows that are held in the deeper recesses of the heart that haven't yet been brought to light to be illuminated and healed and understood. Because until we do that, those shadows keep being projected. And if we don't understand that, then when we look at the world and how it is now, and how it's on fire, literally, and burning in so many ways, you know, burning racially and burning the earth and devastating through the tar sands and through the decimation of forest and through the melting of the ice caps and the acidification of the, of the oceans and the loss of species and on and on and on it goes, what does it say? about what we're projecting and how we feel about ourselves. How decimated this heart is that it projects a decimated and and, um, continually degraded uh, world and earth and split between us all. So when we come to place, you know, when we come to recognize this is our historical and collective uh, context that uh, when we come to recognize where we're practicing within then we start to perhaps get a measure of the work that has to be done it's a, it's a, and then part of that work um, ha- has to be something of a recognition of, of where you know where the journey is and where it will take us there's um, someone called Chris Crass. He's written a book called Going to Places That uh, Scare Me. No, he's written a book called Towards Collective Liberation and a chapter, Going to Places That Scare Me. My educational experience was often challenging 
I grew up believing that I was a lone individual on a linear path with no past. History was a set of dates and events that, while interesting to learn, had little or no relationship to my life. I was just a person doing my own thing. Then I started to learn that being white, male, middle class, able-bodied, mostly heterosexual, and a citizen of the United States meant that I not only had privileges, but that was rooted those privileges were rooted in history. I was part of social categories embedded in and shaped by history. Part of being in these groups means being normal, that standard by which all others are judged. My images of just being my own person are now, however, joined by images of slave ships, indigenous communities burned to the ground, families destroyed, violence against women, women, and white ruling class men using white poor men to colonize peoples of color and the earth. So I think it sort of touches something of his words of our journey of reclamation. It includes seeing that Dharma rise, not just seeing our own maybe personal hindrances and how we um, interpret them so personally, but actually seeing how they're, they're, they're woven into this collective and then adjusting our gaze. So we see awakening, and awakening is not just awakening into figurines of imagined rose-tinted clouds of lightness, which is how I used to think of it. <laughs> I had this idea when I ordained as a nun that I would somehow sit in my kuti and just float away nicely. <laughs> you know, I was into a very profound shock of entering what was really a sort of a spiritual warrior camp that was full of <laughs> very difficult confrontations. But awakening is awakening means bringing, as Carl Jung says, not imagining figurines of light, but bringing into our, our illumination, into our awareness, all that's been held in the shadow. So it's not, you know, we don't have to do it all in one bite, but we have to be aware of the, the breadth of the work as we enter awakening. And, and our curriculum now, as this point of evolutionary process that we're in, demands awakening. Because if we don't, then we are headed towards a very, um, a pathway that is actually catastrophic. That is clear, not only catastrophic, but suicidal. So we, you know, we, it's like awaken or die, basically. And awakening is, we're fast-tracking collectively in our awakening agenda, which means, awakening means all that's held in the shadow, all that hasn't been unhealed has to come to our awareness. But don't take it too personally. <laughs> it's very personal, and it should feel very personal, but it's also conditioning. You know, we are awakening to the conditioning that we have all received through centuries. That is, um, some of it is very profoundly wounding and, and false. So it has to be illuminated and to be seen clearly so that we can let go of it and, and challenge it. And that conditioning is so insidious. There are... You know, like as a white person in South Africa, you immediately are in a dynamic, even if you don't want to be. You're in a historical dynamic. Um, and, and people relate to you in, in that dynamic. And however much you want to try and change the dynamic, it's like you stretch, stretch something. And then it just, no, I don't. <laughs> and then it goes back into the social conditioning. And there was a point in my years of being there when I walked into a supermarket and where I'd seen and somehow the brain had ingested at such a sort of subliminal level the message that the African people are there as a labor force. And you as a white are still on some level, you're privileged and you're a colonizer. It's a very painful dynamic. 
And I would sort of really try and resist it and work against it and then a lot of guilt and then try and compensate. It's a very painful affect. But there was a day when I walked into a supermarket and there was this elderly Zulu man and he was struggling with these baskets, these shopping baskets, to pull one out of the, of the, um, of the stack. And as he did, the moment he did, I was walking past and I took it and I said, thank you very much. And he looked at me and I looked at him and it was like, he's getting the basket for himself, but I was like the white madam in that moment and I could have died. All my Buddhist um, kind of socialistic, democratic, in that moment I realized the conditioning had happened and the shame and the guilt and the sort of, I crawled around the marketplace. But it was an educational moment. It was a humble moment because I had to recognize um, through all my reactions on that, that this is how it works. (laughs) You don't even, it's not that you want to be conditioned, but it happens. And this is the the humble work to see how that impacts and when it arises, a moment of racism, a moment of of assumption about the other, a moment how the jitta in its purity isn't conditioned, it's resonant with, but then that conditioning and patterning happens through so many places in so many ways. And then I'm not seeing that person, I'm seeing the projection of my conditioning and reacting to that. So I'm not seeing the other actually. And so most of the time when the, 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 the heart is conditioned and patterned, which it is through many forces, historical, religious and otherwise, at very profound levels, that jitta, when it's activated, and particularly when it's activated from fear and, and being feeling threatened, it will project and react to its own projections. And in that moment we become very dangerous as human beings. We create wars, we demonize and we, we shift the pain of our shadow onto that other in massive ways. As we see, you know, when we go to look at, if we look at how we describe the peoples we are at war with, it says something about ourselves, how we dehumanize and objectify. So to really work at this, this level of popancha, there's a, there was once a, a great angelic being called Saka who came from the Brahma realms and came down uh, with a question to the Buddha. And Saka said, beings wish to live without hate, harming, hostility or enmity. They wish to live in peace, but they live in hate harming one another, hostile as enemies, by what fetters are they bound that they live in such a way? Isn't that our question as well? Why are we doing this? (laughs) Why do we repeatedly do this on ourselves and on each other? So Saka uh, asked the Buddha this and the Buddha responded, because of envy and stinginess. So Saka said, yeah, but why is there envy and stinginess? And so then the Buddha said, well, because Saka, because of liking and disliking. Because the mind is going into to comparing. I want that. We feel stingy, we feel diminished in ourselves, and I want that. I have envy, I want to conquer, I want to take. I like that, I dislike this, that this is this, this, he's going into the deeper causes. And so then Saka says, yes, but why is there liking and disliking? And, and the Buddha says, well, and I love this about the, the Dharma, because it's so sort of the, you know, the way of going into, in a scientific way, almost looking at what is happening here. So the Buddha says, because of desire, because there's desire, we want something that's not ours. We feel it's not ours. Actually, when we're really rooted in the jitta, it's kind of all ours. <laughs> but when we're pulled out, as we are, so profoundly and activated in that fear and barrenness of the heart, we can't ever get enough. The desire, we're just constantly driven and thirsting because of desire. But Saka's still not satisfied yet, yeah, but why is there desire? 
Why is there desire? It's a good question. Why is there desire? Because sakha of thinking. Because of thinking. You know, it's generated at a very... But then sakha says, yes, yes. But why is there thinking? (laughs) And the Buddha says, and he goes to the root of the problem, because sakha of papancha. So papancha is a Buddhist term that is connected... It's thinking, but it's thinking in a particular way. It's thinking, literally means to spread out. It generates, we generate, a thought happens, and then we generate a a reality. It's the creations of the mind. And when those creations aren't informed and illuminated with mindful investigation, with awareness, and touched with compassion, uh, the compassion that's not separating out, but is actually including in, and gathering in, then then we have the causes of war. So the onus on us is to really be mindful. This is with going back to Ajahn Charles, listening to the heart, really being mindful of our thinking. You know, and how it constantly generates that othering. And and not only others others, but it others ourselves. And this is the deepest apartheid, apartheid against peoples, peoples of color, peoples other than us, whether it's whoever it is, Muslims, whatever now, wherever we place our shadow. The earth, we have a huge apartheid, we don't feel with the earth. So now we're devastating, it's pro- we're projecting our dislocation and devastating Mother Nature, our mother, to the point that you know, the insanity of it. We don't realize we depend on our mother for our breath and for our nourishment and for our water. But the deepest apartheid is against our own heart. We don't feel, we won't feel. So when we come to a Buddhist practice that then gives us permission to disassociate even further, to disconnect even further, then we have to question what are we doing Um, One of the founders of um, quantum physics, Max Planck, says, All matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force. We assume behind this force the existence of a conscious and, and intelligent mind. We must, sorry... All matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force. We must assume behind this force the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of matter. So therefore, and this is um, um, my thought, (laughs) if, as depth of insight reveals, form is in fact emptiness. We've really focused on the emptiness of form in our sort of contemporary Western Buddhist, which sort of in a way gives us permission to further disassociate from response within the world, being in the relational field, feeling what needs to be felt as we focus on going somewhere to some transcendent place, following the same trajectory of what um, has been our religious metaphor for millennia. But on the other hand, as it says in the Heart Sutra, form is not only empty, but emptiness is in fact form. Spirit is in fact matter. So if, as depth insight reveals, form is in fact emptiness, and emptiness is in fact form, how then have we arrived at the idea that liberation is apart from this world of form? This is a vital inquiry for Buddhist practitioners because so much time and energy is spent on trying to get out of this world, when in fact this world is suffused with and manifesting reality all of the time. So what then, we understand that, where then is the sacred? So there was a moment, and Ruth mentioned this today, and I'm so glad that uh, she did, because it's a very critical moment in Siddhartha Gautama's journey before he became the Buddha, 
where he had, in fact, followed the extreme path of mortification and asceticism with the hope of crushing his body and propelling himself into very subtle and refined states of consciousness as an act of liberation. And in a certain way, for many of us, there's some kind of narrative about that that informs what we do in our practice. You know, this sort of crushing and this propelling ourselves, wanting these refined states. And he got to the place where he was masterful at the refined states and also extreme in the crushing of his body. It's said that when he touched his belly, he could feel his backbone. When he touched his hair, his hair would fall out because he decided even eating was a problem. So he got down to a few rice grains a day, but then he decided even breathing was a problem because it's coarse. Who wants to breathe? You know, you have to go... <sighs> you know, like when you're in those refined states, you don't want to feel anything. You just want to like that, you know, bliss out. So then he decided not to breathe. I and mean, at that point, he started to... His body started... He was on the edge of death, basically. He was racked with pain and... And then he had a memory, as, as Ruth was saying, he had this memory of when he was a child, something innocent, something fresh, something open. He remembered when he sat under the rose apple tree and he wasn't trying to get anywhere or crush anything. He was just breathing, just breathing. No agenda. And in that breath, it was very pleasant and very blissful and very nourishing. It was the mother of the breath nourishing. And he could feel that. And he felt that in that memory that the psyche came at that point, he felt this is a pleasure that is blameless. And he also thought, might there be another way? Might there be another way? And it's a very critical moment because we have come to that place where we have crushed, we have tried to catapult ourselves beyond, we have devastated and we're at the point of you know, mass extinction and we have to stop like the Buddha is at the point of death and say, might there be another way? <laughs> because God, don't we need another way? <laughs> we have to find another way. And at that moment then the universe responded because it's, a, it's an intelligent, 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 responsive, universe, world. It's alive, it's responsive. And so Sujata appeared. The feminine appeared and came to this emaciated man. She'd been looking at him on the banks of the river and she'd been doing her washing and thinking, wow, this guy, you know, he's pretty keen, but you know, as we said, he needs a good meal. <laughs> you know, the grandmothers, get the grandmothers in there. He needs nourishment. So she got together some milk rice. And at that moment, Siddhartha, you know, he was very open. It was a very, it's this childlike openness. All strategies are relinquished. They haven't worked. They're taking us to death. Put them down. It's a very powerful moment when we put down our strategies and we're just now open. We have to then somehow listen deeply, listen open to the mystery, become really humble. And the Sujata, the feminine, appeared and came to him with the milk rice and offered it. And he saw in that moment, he saw the nourishing feminine, the gift of life. He saw the possibility of a new way opening. He saw the need to embrace form nourish the body, come back into the earth. And of course, at that moment, he was abandoned by all his fellow tough ascetics. You know, milk rice from a woman. But he wouldn't have been the Buddha without that, actually. He wouldn't have been nourished, he wouldn't have been fed, he wouldn't have had the ground then to completely be on his own, but on his own in a way that wasn't lonely, but was deeply connected with the vast intelligence of the Dharma that was ne then became his guide from within. And he found and opened into another way, the middle way of, of awakening. So this warrior, at a certain point, you know, when we look at might there be another way, 
the warrior mind that we bring into Buddhism so much, and I certainly trained in that. But I think it was held differently, I have to say, in Thailand and perhaps in Asia than the way we picked it up as Westerners with our conditioning. There was more devotion, there was more connection, there was more community, there was more love. There was more, even though it was a very aesthetic, patriarchal warrior tradition, the feminine was infused within the culture in a certain way. And that's not to say there's not issues around profound gender discrimination, which is a struggle in Thailand now for nuns and women in a certain way. But there was a, a way that that martial energy was balanced in a way that we didn't really have as Westerners because we already came from such a wounded, dislocated place. And so we're good at being a warrior. Yeah, and then we sort of um, attack ourselves on that point of view and repeat the patterns of, of really self-denigration, lack of love, lack of uh, nourishment, lack of gathering, lack of the feminine, lack of the relational. So there has to be some kind of reclamation in how we understand. And in that reclamation, there is, as the... As the archetypal journey of the Buddha moving from the warrior to the lover to the energy of love to open, to feel and to resonate to be nourished if we go the path of the warrior this is um, and take it to its extreme degree there is a lot to learn there's discipline, letting go, renunciation is very important. Being able to really um, know how to do that can be a very helpful um, skill and development. But it's not without the love, it's very becomes very um, sterile, rigid, rigidified. And the loyalties are misplaced, they become misplaced. Uh, with the with the warrior metaphor, the loyalties to the wrong thing in the end, to this conquering of whatever we're conquering. This is an Iraq veteran, Daniel Summers, in his suicide note. This is the this is the warrior gone to the extreme. The wrong loyalty to the wrong thing. My body has become nothing but a cage a source of pain and constant problems. The illness I have it has caused me pain that not even the strongest medicines could dull, and there is no cure. All day, every day, a screaming agony in every nerve ending in my body. It is nothing short of torture. My mind is a wasteland filled with visions of incredible horror, unceasing depression and crippling anxiety. Even with all the medications that doctors dare give, still, simple things that everyone else takes for granted are nearly impossible for me. I cannot laugh, I cannot cry, I can barely leave the house, I derive no pleasure from any activity. Everything simply comes down to passing time until I can sleep again. Our empire building and the service, in so what happens in service of that, might there be another way? <laughs> you know, maybe this other way through this uh, reclamation of what is sacred within life. You know, who, who are we? Who are we that we're so arrogant now that we can just take animals and species and wildlife and and wilderness and, and feel we can own it and do whatever we want, pollute and extract and you know, and who are we that we think we can go into other countries and decimate and lay waste and uh, uh, without consequences and uh, consequences to the fabric of our own being. Never mind the decimation we leave behind. We, we you know, how can we continue these pathways? without the karma of it all becoming so toxic that we can hardly take one breath 
without feeling the pain of that. It's a collective pain now. So that this gentle and very necessary reclamation through the tenderness, the journey of tenderness, it's an invitation. It's an invitation of reframing how we practice, how we understand the Dharma, how we understand the spiritual, how we understand the sacred, how we claim that back. Small steps, isn't it? As Mahagosananda said, Larry, this morning, small steps, or Ajahn Chah with um, Kilisara's talk, learn one thing well and you will know everything. One thing, each breath will take you to profound resting back into your home, into your heart, where all things merge. Each breath will teach you, you don't own anything, because you have to let it go on each out-breath. Each breath will teach you how deeply connected we are with everything else, every tree that gives off oxygen. This is from the first standing there people. I'll just finish with some of their words. The Khoisan, so-called Bushmen, from the lands where I've been living. Um, very powerful lands in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, on the border of Lesotho, um, in the Uchlthlamba um, mountain range barrier of spears, as the Zulus call, or the Drakensberg, the Draken Mountains, Dragon Mountains, the Afrikaans call. Before they were colonized, before, before, before ancient times, thousands and thousands of years ago, there's this movie, slight digression, there's this movie called Where the Green Ants Dream. Have you seen it? And there's a moment, it's set in Australia, and it's, a, it's, a, it's based on the, the truth of what Australia has been, you know, the, the decimation again of First Nation peoples at the hands of the, the colonization, um, you know, thanks much to the British <laughs> and our wonderful history, that <laughs> um, uh, there's a mining company, you know, this... Uh, this um, and my, I have family in Australia. My brother, one of my older brothers, was, you know, we didn't think when I was growing up about these things. You know, we were part of the immigrant race, come over from Ireland onto Australia and working in the mines. Um, my brother, we, you know, we didn't think about the First Nation Aboriginal peoples. There was no idea. And, you know, we talk about it now as we become more aware. And he said, you know, one day I was there up in the Northern Territories, you know, in these shacks and the guys would live in to do the mining. And he said, you know, one night I was asleep and uh, suddenly this huge spider fell on me and I leapt out of bed and threw my covers off and sort of rushed around the room and then it wasn't there. And he said, the next day when I came to breakfast, I was talking about and then my friend had the exact same experience. And he said, that's when I knew I was in another land, someone else's land. That's when I got something else was happening here. You know, when I felt there is a deeper. So even though in, in where I am, that the First Nation peoples, they call, them, they call themselves the first sitting there people, even though their presence actually, they were genocided, not there anymore, their presence kind of is there in a very uh, powerful um, way. This is um, Kabo talking. I feel that tonight I shall die. For I am wounded by an arrow and the wound is telling me that I shall die. The bite of the wound is fierce and the mouth of the wound does not heal but it swells and throbs so my flesh aches and I burn with pain and feel my heart falling. 
I know I shall not see the break of another day, for my heart feels I am to die, and I cannot bear to think of the smell of springbok. But as for you, you must look after the children. You must keep them with you. You must keep them beside you. You must not take your eye from them. You must not give them away to strangers. You must keep a good fire so that the cold does not kill them. And though I will be dead, I will think of you and the children. I will still be with you and wonder whether you are warm and have food. I shall not speak to you again. I shall not speak to you in the darkness of the night. But you shall fetch wood and make a fire and sit beside me and watch over me and take care of me as I writhe by the fire for the time of death has come and the time for talking is over. I speak to you, holding up your heart so that you may understand. And this is my commentary. Time with relentless harvesting Your precious human life is short. As all life gathers proof of our faith through the pilgrimage of the night that tests the ground of our being so we may know the measure of courage and the wellspring of our heart from which we sip nectar. Just as the brown striped bug drinks from the white elderflower, and the orange, thin-winged butterfly skips through ochre grasses, and the grey, knowing wharves move through cold, white snow, and the rhinos through dry bush felt go, as lions stalk impala along the river slow. Slow is the earth's rhythm, deep and unfathomable in our, uh, in our collective soul. The rhythm of the day's tick-tock winding through the web of our connection of internet consumption, where we search what we hope to know. Because to truly know is to not know, and to not know is so much evidence of where faith can go. This is from the Sutra, the Avantansaka Sutra. It is like a great regal tree growing in the rocks and sand of barren wilderness where the roots get water, the branches, leaves, flowers and fruits will all flourish. The regal tree of awakening growing in the wilderness of birth and death is the same. All living beings are its roots. All Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are its flowers and fruits. By serving all beings, by serving this great earth, by pouring the water of living, gentle and fierce compassion. Together we will embody the flowers and fruits of our true awakening. And even when the realms of empty space are exhausted, the realms of living beings are exhausted, the karmas of living beings are exhausted, and the afflictions of living beings are exhausted, we will still accord with this our deepest heart, endlessly, continuously, in thought after thought, without cease, our body speech and mind, never weary of this service. So says our true heart. Gate, gate, paragate, parasangate, bodhisvaha. Hey.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.